This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 21st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Forgive this blatant commercial, but Cato Audio is the Cato Institute's monthly roundup of speeches and events hosted by yours truly. In this month's edition for our monthly roundtable, I spoke with Cato's Clark Neely and Bob McNamara of the Institute for Justice about Cato's lawsuit against the Securities and Exchange Commission. You can, of course, subscribe to Cato Audio at our website, cato.org. The Cato Institute would like to publish a book uh, that contains some pointed criticisms of the Securities and Exchange Commission, but the Securities and Exchange Commission also has a policy of imposing gag orders on settling defendants in civil enforcement actions. So we should note that these uh, have been perpetual gag orders. And so the Cato Institute is suing the Securities and Exchange Commission to allow this gentleman to publish his book through Cato. I'm joined by Clark Neely, who is the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, and Bob McNamara, who is representing the Cato Institute uh, at his law firm, the Institute for Justice. Gentlemen, welcome. Let's begin here. Clark, detail for us how uh, how Cato got involved in this. Well, uh, a fairly well-known law professor uh, who I'm acquainted with uh, contacted me um, about a year and a half ago and said that he um, had someone that he was in touch with who had had a very bad experience uh, with not just the SEC but also DOJ. He was both uh, he was sued civilly in an SEC enforcement action. He was also the subject of a DOJ criminal prosecution, and that the author had written a memoir about that experience and was very eager to publish it, but was unable to do so because, as you noted, the SEC uh, requires as a condition of settlement what amounts to a perpetual gag order that forbids settling defendants from ever challenging the substance of the SEC's allegations against them. Uh, and that's precisely what this memoir does. All right. Uh, Bob McNamara, you are handling the case on behalf of the Cato Institute. So what are the claims that uh, Cato is making in its suit? So the claim is very straightforward. This is a violation of the First Amendment. I, I think it's kind of every First Amendment lawyer's fantasy to have a case about a banned book. And we finally have a case about a banned book. Uh, fundamentally, this amounts to a government prohibition on a private citizen publishing a book that is critical of the government. Uh, it's the classic thing you cannot do under the First Amendment. And the government can't extract these promises uh, as a condition of not using its overwhelming powers in some other way. Uh, what happens in these settlements, it's not like a criminal plea where you stand up in, your, in court and you say, I did X and I did Y and I did Z and those are the acts I can be punished for. You actually, you don't admit any of the allegations in the complaint. They say, we'll go away. We will settle this case. You don't have to admit you did anything wrong. But in exchange for us not pursuing you to the ends of the earth, you have to promise never to publicly deny anything we have alleged against you uh, on pain of catastrophic penalties. And that amounts to uh, a demand that you waive your First Amendment rights. And it actually amounts to a, a classic prior restraint. What they're saying in these orders is, look, if you say anything we don't like, we get to go to a federal judge and demand that the federal judge punish you for criticizing the government. And I don't think federal judges are or under the First Amendment can be in the business of punishing people who criticize government officials. And as we all know from Walter Sobchak that the Supreme Court has roundly rejected prior restraint. Clark, it seems to me that if you're a federal agency 
and as one of the conditions uh, that you use uh, to allow people to settle uh, various claims that you have against them, one of the benefits of uh, preventing them from speaking out is that other people that you might want to uh, take to court in the future would not have the benefit of the public statements of the people who had criticized the government in public. Right. Well, this is this is every bureaucrat's fantasy, isn't it? Is to be able to operate uh, completely under the radar screen and behind closed doors uh, to uh, act against others with impunity and then to, after browbeating them into a settlement and something like 98% of all SEC civil enforcement actions are settled, um, to ensure that regardless of whether uh, your claims against that person did or did not have merit, regardless of whether you had any evidence to support them, regardless of whether your case fell apart at some point. Um, the fact that you were able to bring the full might of the U.S. government to bear against some hapless defendant, uh, and in many of the cases, this is just a pure business decision. They're not uh, acknowledging they've done anything wrong. They're just saying, look, in the scheme of things, do we have the ability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the SEC for years or a decade or more? No, we don't. So as a business decision, we're going to settle. Um, and so again, regardless of the merits or lack of merits of the SEC's allegations, they get uh, a situation where the defendant um, can never for the rest of his life, uh, challenge the substance of any of the SEC's allegations, and think who, who wouldn't want that? If you know the business world, who wouldn't want to be able to muzzle you know uh, your victims um, uh, when you decide you use your uh, enforcement powers against them? So, uh, Bob, it seems like uh, this is once again, as you said, very straightforward, and uh, it's most especially. You would think that the First Amendment would protect speech that is critical of the government, even if uh, it affords lesser protection to uh, different other kinds of speech. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a core First Amendment value, and I think largely what's allowed the SEC to get away with this for decades is exactly the the transactional nature of a lot of these enforcement actions that Clark talked about. If the SEC comes after you, the SEC has the power to ratchet up or down kind of how aggressive they want to be in settlement. Uh, maybe they initially sought $10 million in fines, but they have a terrible case. They tell you, hey, we'll go away for $5,000. Any reasonable businessman would rather pay a $5,000 fine than pay lawyers to litigate against the SEC through trial. But the SEC also has a policy. They say, sorry, we have a blanket policy. We can't sign any kind of settlement unless you agree to a perpetual gag order. And sensible businessmen say, OK, if I can get out of this for $5,000 and not pay my lawyers, I'll agree to the gag order. And so no one has actually had the the wherewithal to challenge these in court, even though I think they're they're plainly unconstitutional. And the the thing that this gets the SEC is not just that they get to operate under the radar, but they get to operate with exactly the degree of radar scrutiny that they choose. So what happens is the SEC files a an enforcement action and they say we're we're filing an enforcement action against Caleb Brown and Caleb uh, steals puppies and is mean to cats. And they issue a press release that says Caleb Brown steals puppies and is mean to cats. And then you hire a lawyer and they say, look, we get that we probably don't have the evidence to prove any of this at trial. We'll go away. But you just have to promise never to claim that you're nice to cats and promise never to claim that you haven't kicked a puppy. And we're going to leave our press release out on the Internet for everyone to see. We get the first word. We get the last word. But you're free to go. You don't have to pay your lawyer anymore as long as you promise not to challenge us. Uh, in civil actions... What is the purpose or how is it – how may a gag order be used appropriately? 
Well, um, you know, gag order is obviously a loaded term. Certainly, there are uh, settings in which, uh, particularly in a lawsuit between two private entities, um, you can have things like a non-disparagement clause, right? That says, "Look, we'll both go our own way. Um, we won't say anything mean about each other, and we'll just agree to sort of, you know, drop whatever dispute we had." Um, the, you know, sort of the exact scope of of what a court will enforce is not particularly uh, well settled, um, but. That's somewhat irrelevant to this case because, of course, what's going on in this case is um, what's called an unconstitutional condition. In other words, you don't have a right to a settlement offer from the SEC. No one says that you do. Um, but it is clear, black letter law, that the government cannot condition the receipt um, of any benefit, even if it's a benefit they had no obligation to extend to you. But they can't condition the receipt of a benefit uh, on your willingness uh, or your agreement uh, to waive constitutional rights. That's just black letter law. And there's a really easy way to understand this, or I think there's a really easy way to understand this. Uh, I think some people might look at this case and say, hey, look, this is just a civil lawsuit and uh, you know, this is a term that one side proposed and the other side agreed to, so what's the problem? Um, that is just totally inconsistent with uh, this unconstitutional conditions doctrine that I mentioned. Um, but you also kind of know in your gut that it can't be right and here's how you, you can think that through. Imagine that this was uh, a criminal prosecution and in fact, there was a criminal prosecution in this case uh, and the government suggests um, – uh, a plea bargain as they typically do. 97% of all federal criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain. Um, they basically eliminated the criminal jury trial. And the government says, well, we'll offer you the plea bargain uh, and you know, you'll receive a certain punishment. Oh, but also uh, we need you to go ahead and waive um, your First Amendment rights so you can't ever go out and publicly um, proclaim your innocence. And also while we're at it, why don't you go ahead and waive your Fourth Amendment rights? And so from now on, the rest of your life, uh, we can just come into your house or you know, into your car, look in your trunk anytime we want without probable cause and without a warrant. Um, that is technically really the same thing as we're talking about here. Oh, oh, that's just a that's just an agreement between uh, you know the Department of Justice and this defendant. And you know, um, if he didn't like that proposal, he didn't have to take the plea. He could have gone to you know gone to trial. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the government proposing that as a condition of settlement or a condition of plea in a criminal case, you go ahead and go, agree to go ahead and just waive some number of your constitutional rights. And guess what? DOJ doesn't do this in criminal cases and you know why they don't do it in criminal cases because it would be shot down immediately by the courts. It's the same thing. And I think really the striking thing is how global these gag orders are that the SEC is going after. Again, you you see criminal pleas where somebody has to stand up and say, I admit I kicked a puppy on January 4th. Uh, and they say that under oath and they can't really go outside and say, I, I didn't kick a puppy. I mean, they can say that, but they're then <laughs> saying they, they lied under oath. And the SEC could very easily settle civil cases the same way. They could say, look, we think we can prove you did X thing. And in fact, in some of these settlement agreements you see, uh, the person actually does say, I admit that I did this or I failed to do that. But also, in addition, I promise never to question any of the other allegations that you haven't proved and maybe can't prove. Uh, and there's really no justification for that beyond letting people speak freely would make the SEC look bad and the SEC doesn't want to look bad. They don't want to look like they're going after people with charges they can't prove. Is it harder to find a parallel case to this one because there are other gag orders currently outstanding? 
It's so it's hard to find public cases, but I can tell you there are a huge number of these gag orders out there. And the reason I know that is that as soon as coverage of Cato's lawsuit hit the Internet, I started to get phone calls. And I know Clark started to get phone calls uh, of people whose names I cannot tell you because they can't speak publicly as a matter of law, but who say, look, I, I had an SEC enforcement action and we actually like we started to go to court and it became very clear I was going to win. And so they came to me with this deal where I could get a, a very favorable settlement as long as I promised never to say anything about it again. And so I took that deal because I'm not crazy. This happens seemingly all the time, and it doesn't make the papers because if you Google any of these people, the only thing you see is the SEC press release saying they kick puppies. One thing that's important to keep in mind is um, on the criminal side, we have some idea of how often uh, people are coerced into false confessions. In other words, coerced into pleading guilty to a crime that they did not in fact commit. Uh, and of course, we can never know for sure. It's a very difficult thing to sort of ferret out. But um, if you look, for example, at the Innocence Project, uh, which is a nonprofit that seeks to exonerate um, people who have been convicted using DNA evidence, um, which is not perfect, but it's about as close as we can get. And something between 10 and 20 percent of uh, defendants who have been exonerated using DNA evidence by the Innocence Project in fact confessed. They in fact entered into plea bargains with respect to crimes that they did not commit. So we don't really have any idea um, what the percentage would be over here with the SEC and their civil enforcement actions, but to a high degree of certainty, um, some number of, of uh, businesses that they pursue um, are innocent of any wrongdoing. Um, and to an equally high degree of certainty, some of them nevertheless enter into uh, a settlement agreement. Um, and so the mere fact that the government has initiated um, a criminal prosecution or a civil enforcement action really doesn't tell us much about whether the target uh, of that action uh, is or is not guilty. And I think it's a bigger problem even than just exonerees or people who are completely innocent because what you see in a lot of enforcement actions is a kind of charge stacking. You did 15 horrendous things and securities law is complicated and sometimes people may have actually done something wrong. You know, I got some bad advice from my lawyer and I, I structured that this way instead of that way and maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, and the crazy thing, the thing that's totally divorced from any other law enforcement practice uh, outside of sort of these gag orders by the SEC and some other agencies uh, is that in exchange for saying, OK, well, I bet we can prove you did this one thing and we'll settle that one thing we can prove in exchange for you promising not to deny the other things that maybe we can't prove. Uh, it's the equivalent of it if I want to say, you know, Caleb kicks puppies and is mean to cats and also drove over the speed limit last week. Well, you probably did drive over the speed limit last week. And I can't coerce you into promising never to contest the puppy kicking charge as as a means of settling the speeding ticket where I have you dead to rights. To the extent that the SEC is a regulatory agency, which, of course, it is, you know, when a, when a regulatory agency enforces rules, uh, the public gets a sense of how those rules are going to be enforced. And it, it seems to me that the public or, or people who may want to structure business deals or uh, engage in activities where the SEC has some regulatory authority, there's no benefit to them or there's really a loss to them in a sense when they try to interpret for themselves using uh, case law to help understand how those rules are actually applied. So the, uh, you know, a loser here in, in these kinds of actions would seem to be just people who would like to engage in activities where the SEC has authority. I think the losers are people who would like to engage in activities where the SEC has authority, but the losers are also just 
voters and legislators and people who want to hold their government accountable. I, it's a very common question in political debate now to ask whether a particular law enforcement agency is doing too much or too little. Are they overreaching or are they underreaching? And with respect to the SEC, it's almost impossible to tell because no one's allowed to complain about them. Almost every civil enforcement action is settled. 100% of the settlements contain a gag order. And so there's actually no one out there who you could bring on your podcast to say, you know what, the SEC brought a civil enforcement action against me and they were wrong and their allegations were wrong and they shouldn't be allowed to do this. And squelching those voices silences that important public debate. And if I were, uh, you know, just speaking as a voter or if I were a member of Congress, I would want to have some sense of what these people were doing in my name. And it's a very hard sense to get when they use their power to make sure that no one is allowed to criticize the exercise of their power. Essentially, the SEC has put itself in charge of who gets to criticize the SEC, which is the last thing we should want. I want to add to something that Bob said because we are in the vicinity of one of the darkest and dirtiest secrets of administrative law right here. Um, on paper and the way it's taught to law students, um, the way administrative agencies are supposed to make policy is uh, through rulemaking. So in other words, uh, they propose to interpret um, a congressional statute in a particular way. That's what administrative agencies do. So they advise the public. We're thinking about uh, interpreting this statute in this particular way, which will lead to this particular policy. What do folks think about that? Um, so they'll, they'll advise, in this case, the quote unquote regulated community. That would be people who are covered by the SEC laws. And they'd say, what do you think about this proposed interpretation of the statute that'll result in this new policy? Then you get what's called a notice and comment period and people get to weigh in and say, well, it would have this you know, uh, negative consequence or it'd be, you know, create these difficulties. And so you really should maybe do it a different way. Uh, and the agency is supposed to process all of that and then come up with a final proposed rule, which then there's, you know, a period of time and it goes into effect. That's actually not the way that um, many agencies do most of their policymaking anymore. What they do oftentimes is they um, uh, basically engage in rulemaking through litigation. Um, so effectively, they are um, adopting new agency policies and not through the notice and comment period uh, or, or a process that I described. But they'll just go after something. They'll say, well, you know what? It doesn't really say anything in the statute or in our existing regulations about whether you can um, write a securities involve a security involving dinosaur cloning. But we don't think that's a very good idea, so we're going to sue this company uh, that's you know writing securities for dinosaur cloning, and then we're going to get them to admit that they shouldn't have been doing that. Um, and then that actually becomes part of the agency policy. They've essentially buffaloed somebody into acknowledging a highly contestable interpretation of federal law and existing rules of that agency. And then the fact that that person capitulated actually then becomes a basis for policymaking where the, the, the agency then turns around and says, OK, so now it's clear you can't sell securities involving dinosaur cloning. And, and to the extent there aren't people talking about this in public or even aware of it in public, that gives the agency the broadest possible scope of what that regulation could mean. Yeah, and in fact, they can have any policy that they can browbeat some defendant um, into agreeing that you know the defendant shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have done X. Okay, great. That's our new policy. They completely circumvent uh, the normal rulemaking process, including notice and comment. Um, and it's just this very uh, you know uh, kind of underhanded way of, of of making policy behind the scenes and under the radar. Though, in fairness, you don't have to admit you shouldn't have done X. You just have to admit that I would rather pay a fine that is cheaper than the cost of going to trial uh, than defend the fact that I did X. Right. I somehow <laughs> managed to overstate the case and actually make it seem like a more uh, a process with more integrity than it actually has. Okay. So I do want to talk about this book to the extent we can. Um, 
you know, what can we say about what's in this book uh, written by this gentleman? Well, so the author was a, an entrepreneur uh, and a business person somewhere in the um, southern part of flyover country uh, who started a, an innovative uh, new business that uh, involved a, a broker-dealer arrangement where you could, uh, in effect, invest in this um, uh, new uh, sort of way of, of, of doing business in this particular area. It turned out to be extremely lucrative. They were really onto something. Uh, they uh, The business grew um, and people were eager to invest uh, in the company. But they were their business model was to be very highly leveraged, um, as most people probably know. It became difficult to obtain, very difficult to obtain credit around ten years ago, or a little more than ten years ago. And so this led to a, a, a basically a situation where they had to stop paying dividends uh, to some of the investors. Um, this then uh, some of them went and complained to the SEC, which opened an investigation. The result was that uh, the author and uh, some others were ended up being the target of both an SEC civil enforcement action um, and a, uh, a criminal prosecution by the Department of Justice for alleged financial crimes. Um, the author is adamant um, that they didn't do anything wrong uh, and that this was in effect a misunderstanding on the part of the federal government about the nature of this business and how it was being conducted. Um, but in both of those proceedings, both the civil enforcement action and the criminal prosecution, the uh, the coercive uh, levers available to the government and applied by the government were uh, so irresistible, were so powerful um, that the author ended up uh, settling the civil enforcement action with the SEC um, and uh, entering into a plea bargain um, in the criminal prosecution with DOJ um, and was very clearly affected. As you might expect, somebody who believes that they were innocent would be affected by that experience, wrote a memoir about it and very much wants to share those experiences with the public so they can have a better understanding of just how their government operates and what the government, including the SEC and the DOJ, does in our names. And I think the the only thing I would add, again, speaking very obliquely, is that to the extent the author actually admitted to conduct, and he did admit to conduct both in the context of his criminal plea and in the civil settlement, he admitted, I did X thing. What he admitted to was fairly minor, was uh, relatively minor, particularly compared to what he was charged with and what the SEC blasted out in his press release, in its press release. And so even if you you take kind of his, his plea agreement for all of its worth and believe he actually did these things that he admitted to, the SEC essentially gets to publicly trumpet that we took down a supervillain and their press release on this guy is... It, it sounds horrendous. So they get to tell the public, we took down a supervillain uh, without telling anyone. We we let him off basically on jaywalking on the condition that he let the public continue to believe that he's a supervillain so that we can look good. It's exactly the kind of transaction that we're worried about in the First Amendment context. Yeah. And I would say as career litigators, I think that both uh, Bob and I um, would look at or, or do look at the situation and, and at least I what I see is all the hallmarks of a case that just completely fell apart as as the investigation went on, as the case was you know sort of put together, um, and particularly when the criminal case um, you know as it as it came down the home stretch towards trial, um, the conduct of the government, the conduct of the various uh, prosecutors and and enforcement officials involved have to me again every hallmark of a case that just completely crumbled out from underneath them as they got a clearer understanding uh, both of what actually happened and of what was going to be necessary for them to. Prove in order to support the allegations that they made at the outset. The criticisms that uh, the author uh, levies aren't just against the SEC. They're also against the Department of Justice. Um, what other agencies make use of these perpetual gag orders in 
uh, civil claims or civil settlements. So the SEC seems to have invented these in the late 1970s. Uh, they, they did kind of a two-step where they announced that First, we don't want to be perceived as settling with anyone who contends they're innocent because we don't want to punish innocent people. And then the way they put that principle into practice, which is, you know, a fine principle, uh, they put it into practice by demanding these global perpetual gag orders in every settlement. And since then, it's been copied by other federal agencies. It's been copied by other state agencies uh, as a, a really effective way of burnishing your reputation and making sure that uh, the public doesn't think you're going after innocent people uh, by making sure that no one's allowed to proclaim their innocence. And where, so where have we seen this in state regulatory context? Uh, a lot of state level financial regulators uh, seem to have adopted exactly the same language. Uh, and it's something that seems to be it's increasingly common in the financial industry uh, where a lot of you'll see a lot of regulatory agencies that enter into settlements where people neither admit nor deny that they did anything wrong. Uh, but what you see in other contexts is a concern for forward going conduct. Uh, like you'll see these settlements with uh, energy regulators and energy regulators will enter into a settlement with a power plant where the power plant says, we don't admit we did anything wrong, but we promise to do these concrete things in the future. And that's a reasonable use of a settlement where someone doesn't admit any wrongdoing. What the agency is concerned about is, you know, how you're going to dispose of your nuclear waste in the future. With financial regulators, since there is no kind of forward-looking conduct they're worried about, they seem to be leveraging all of their power uh, to make sure that in complicated areas where there is room for disagreement and public debate, that that public debate is entirely one-sided and entirely favorable to them. There's a funny kind of tell here as well in the in the sort of the detailed language of this perpetual gag order. There's an exception actually um, where um, if you find yourself in litigation um, and you're called upon to um, you know to testify uh, about what actually happened in the in the you know sort of in the context that the involved where the SEC settled with you, um, you you actually have um, you, you're relieved of your obligations under the settlement agreement. And the reason why that's kind of interesting is this. Um, if the SEC was confident that its allegations were true, then there's no inconsistency there. There's no reason why you should uh, let somebody, um, you know, uh, create an exception for litigation because that person would just then go into court and say, oh, yeah, all these things that the SEC said happened, those actually happened. Um, the reason why this exception is in the settlement agreement is because they understand that sometimes people may actually not have done the things they accuse them of doing. And if they get caught up in some subsequent litigation and they have to testify about what actually happened, they might find themselves on the horns of this dilemma where they either perjure themselves by saying, yeah, I did all those things when it's not actually true, or they violate this agreement by saying what actually happened. I didn't do all those things that the SEC accused me of. And so this exception that they've they've um, uh, included in the perpetual gag order, again, I call it a kind of a tell. It sort of tells you they get that there may well be times when um, people who did not actually do the things they accuse them of will find themselves in a position where they have to tell the truth about what really happened. And if that's in court, they give them an out. Why? Because otherwise you're going to have a situation where somebody might go into court and say, you know, I actually can't testify about this thing because if I did, I would be in violation of this agreement I made with the SEC and that would really arouse a bunch of judges' interest and they might say, oh, you know what? Let me take care of that for you. You are relieved of those obligations. 
And I think it's important to stress that the while the gag orders themselves seem to be largely a tool of financial regulators, the principle that Cato is trying to vindicate in the lawsuit it's doing uh, that where the Institute for Justice is represented is much broader than that because obviously the SEC and enforcement officials at the SEC aren't the only people who would like to trade their enormous power for your constitutional rights. Uh, that's kind of that's the natural thing you'd want to do with enormous power, right? If you're given enormous power and said, but you're limited by these individual rights people have. Uh, I think a lot of people's instinct is, oh, well, how about I just trade some of my enormous power for those rights that are getting in my way and then I can do anything I want. And so IJ also has a case, for example, in New York where we see exactly the same unconstitutional conditions problem uh, and the same underlying phenomenon at work where there's there was a longstanding policy in New York uh, of, for example, the NYPD would approach a laundromat owner and say, hey, we have evidence that there have been sales of stolen goods inside your laundromat. Not that you're doing it, uh, but we know there have been sales of stolen goods. And we know this because we've sent undercover agents into your laundromat to instigate sales of stolen goods. Uh, but don't worry, we're not going to prosecute you criminally uh, if in exchange for us not prosecuting you, you let us install cameras uh, in your laundromat. Uh, in violation of the Fourth Amendment so that we can watch you all the time. Uh, government officials will always want to trade power for rights, and it's important to vindicate the, this idea that they can't do that because fundamentally, if, if government can use unrelated power to make you trade away your individual rights, you don't actually have the individual rights. It's all well and good to say that you have a First Amendment right unless and until the government wants to use its enormous power to crush that right. The point of having the right is that it's a Trump in the first place. I think it's really important for people to understand why Cato wants to publish this particular book. Um, perhaps the most important uh, strategic initiative that we've undertaken um, on the Project for Criminal Justice is to uh, both educate people about the extraordinarily uh, central role that coercive plea bargaining now plays in our criminal justice system. It has virtually eliminated the criminal jury trial. As I said before, 97% of all federal criminal convictions are obtained through uh, plea bargain. In the States, it's more than 95%. So in effect, what we have um, is a system that was meant to be, um, uh, the heart of which was meant to be citizen participation in the form of jury trials that is now one of coercive plea bargaining. And it really is, I think, accurate to say that coercion has become the lifeblood of American criminal justice. Um, when listeners get a chance to read this book, as I hope and expect they will, this book vividly illustrates just how coercive the government can be in these settings. And I can pretty much guarantee you that if you were threatened by DOJ with what this author was threatened with, you would confess to virtually anything to get the deal that was offered. That is the essence of American criminal justice writ large. It's coercive plea bargaining. And that's why people really need to have an opportunity to read this book. All right. The case is Cato Institute v. United States Securities and Exchange Commission. It is in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and you can follow this case at two websites, ij.org and cato.org. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Bob McNamara is the Cato Institute's attorney in the lawsuit ongoing against the Securities and Exchange Commission. He's also a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 